Here we go, back into our biblical series, or our series on biblical justice. This morning, we're moving from, from moving to what I hope and pray will be a, a very practical, uh, here's how we do it. Like this is, we, we've, we've spent the last six weeks, we're not going to review all the stuff this morning, we spent the last six weeks laying out definitions and descriptions of, um, I'm trying to start my timer so at least I have some idea how long we're here, um, descriptions and definitions of biblical justice. We've, we've talked about different facets of justice like uh, primary justice, the responsi- our responsibility to live righteously or justly, uh, and uh, rectifying justice when we see something unjust, the responsibility uh, to, to correct it or to rectify that injustice. We've talked about individual responsibility to, to live justly, and we've talked about the systemic nature of injustice. It's kind of a symptom of, of all of us being sinners and injustice being in, in, endemic in our society. Uh, and we've talked about all of that. And then over the last three weeks, we've really looked at the foundational components that are necessary for justice to be a thing that we're actually able to do, a justice, a, a thing that we're actually able to enjoy. And those are truth, our justification by faith, and then sanctification in faith, and then the gospel. All three of these are necessary uh, if we are going to be able to live by the, by, by the scripture's call to be a just People, today, we're going to go back to the scripture, this time looking for instructions on how to apply all that we've been learning in the last six weeks into life. How do we practice this? How do we put it into practice? We're we're doing this over the next two weeks. Next week, we're going to look broadly about how we do this just living as people in the world. This week, the focus is more central at home, among us, how do we live as Christians among God, or how do we as Christians live together as a just people. So the question we're answering today is how do we live and do justice toward one another such that we become or at least begin to reflect some image of the just society or the just kingdom that God has been building and one day will bring to completion. So how do we do that? How do we participate and practice this justice together? To answer it, we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 13 as uh, I'd encourage you to open your Bible, flip there, get ready to just follow through and look at, the, look at the verses as we talk about them. But let me just set the stage just real quickly. Galatians, like Romans, Paul is dealing with, well, well, ultimately he's dealing with a group of people who are adding back to the gospel and saying, you must do this. You must, you must follow this law. You must, you must not eat certain foods. You must circumcise your kids. You must... Uh, uh, observe, observe the law if you're really going to be Christian. And he's coming back and he's saying, absolutely not. Justification is by faith. That's what we learned, right? And, and then ultimately he's going to show how the, those who are justified by faith have a responsibility to live by faith, that, that primary, or, or to not live by faith, but to live righteous as God's people, to live just as God's people. And, and, and so what happens here is, is Paul isn't just presenting a doctrinal explanation. He's going to present an ethical expectation on God's people. And, and that's what we're going to deal with. And, and, and all of Paul's letters do this. In fact, it's, it's interesting because Paul, the defender of, the, the, the one who we turn to that defends and so clearly establishes that we're saved by faith alone, through Christ alone, by, by God's grace alone, uh, that, that, that he, he so clearly demonstrates that, 
that every one of his letters, virtually every one of his letters, come to a place where he says, because this is true of you, now you do this. You don't earn it, you don't work your way into it, but because you're in it, now you're supposed to live a certain way. That's where we're at today. Because we've been justified by faith, because we're recipients of the God's grace and the gospel, because we have God's truth, and we now know what justice is and what justice does, what do we do with it? That's, that's what we're seeking to understand. So Galatians 5, beginning in verse 13, says this. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. This is not a complete list, it's things like this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Let's pray. Father, help us now. It's very practical, very applicable, and very relevant instruction from your servant Paul. Help us now see the truth in it and apply it to our lives. I pray if there are any here that are wrestling with these things, that, 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 that have never trusted in you, I, w- I would ask, Father, that in, in this time that they would not be convicted to or condemned because they don't live up, but they would recognize how desperately they need Jesus. For those of us that belong to you, help us to see how belonging to you enables us and empowers us to do these things. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe you notice as we read through this, as you look through this passage, it, it deals with two paths we have opportunity to follow, two ways in which we can live. One is a path of indulging the flesh, giving into our sin nature. That's what the flesh is. So the flesh, in Paul's words here, is not about our body. It's not our physical being. It's not the skin hanging on our skeleton. The flesh is our sinful nature. And we can give into that. We can, we can give ourselves to it. The other path, under the influence of the Spirit in Christ and in being justified by faith, we have this other path now open to us and available to us. And that's the influence or living in step with the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And against those things, there is no law. So, so the path of the flesh and giving into the flesh, there's all kinds of laws restricting that. But all the things we're called to do, there's no law restricting it because this is exactly what God intends for his people. to do. So there's no law against it. Go do these things. And we have these two options in front of us. And, and clearly Paul <laughs> leans for the Christian to, to live a certain way. Instead of, instead of having to do all the, the, the voices that are, are demanding us to do in the world around us, to, to, to live up to the desires and the temptations, those, those things that we know are sinful, that are, 
The voices inside our head are saying, yeah, that's good. You can make that. It's okay. It won't hurt anybody, you know. Uh, Instead of having to live it to those voices, Paul is saying there is a better, more fruitful, profitable way. It's no longer necessary to do that. In fact, it's actually better to not do it. In their book, What is the Mission of the Church?, uh, Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert address concerns about how the church is separating and dividing and, and calling for justice in such diverse ways. And, and, and they come to this place where sharing their concerns, they write these words. They write, we are concerned that in our newfound missional zeal, we sometimes put hard oughts on Christians where they should be inviting cans. You ought to do something about human trafficking. You ought to do something about AIDS. You ought to do something about the lack of good public education. When you say ought, you imply that if the church does not tackle these problems, we are being disobedient. We think it would be better to invite individual Christians in keeping with their gifts and and, and calling to try to solve these problems rather than indicting the church for not caring. Now, I appreciate this concern. I appreciate the point they make here because it doesn't deny that there are things Christians ought to to do. In fact, all the way through the book, there are a number of things Christians are supposed to be about doing and the things we must do. But in all of these social missions and all these conversations about how we're to live in the world, we raise these things to the, to, to the place of law and judge each other based on how we do or don't interact in them and Paul's stepping, he's, he's stepping back in this, in this passage and he's showing us, wait a minute, that's not the musts, that's not the oughts, this is the musts, this is the oughts, the things that Christians ought to be about doing and the things Christians must be about doing. And, and we do this to, to one another all the time. It's not just some guys that wrote a book that notice this kind of stuff and we do it, do it to ourselves all the time. So, so I noted from the beginning of the series that one of the reasons we wanted to do it and felt it necessary is that the church, broadly speaking, not just ours, but broadly speaking, the church has begun to tribalize around particular views of justice and how to apply it in the world rather than standing united on the essentials of things like the Apostles or the Nicene Creed or even the great confessions of the Reformation. And so now in the church, you find uh, this is a social justice church. This is a not social justice church. They signed the Declaration for Social Justice. They didn't sign the Declaration uh, for Social Justice. They, 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 they're about racism. They're about abortion. They're about these things. About a year ago, a couple of pastor friends of mine that they don't live here in the state. Um, I, I'm connected to them uh, through networks that, that, that we're involved in and uh, they ended up in a public debate across Facebook over the issue of abortion and racism. And, and it started because one of the pastors called out every other pastor that speaks against abortion but never says anything about racism. And so this other friend of mine who speaks a lot about this, a pastor friend of mine who speaks a lot about the, the sin of abortion, decides to stand up and say, wait a minute, you never say anything about abortion. All you talk about is racism. And it, I think because of their relationship, they were able to end in a still, still, still to be friends. But now we choose who to listen to and who not to listen to. Not based on teaching of truth, not teaching of gospel, but whether or not they are speaking of race and racism, abortion, 
uh, or, or some other uh, 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 human trafficking or, or some other social justice, social mission idea that's near and dear to our hearts. And it doesn't stop at racism and abortion. Over the last couple of years, we have, we, we, we have heard people making a case for how Christians must vote. We, we've listened to Christians tell us about, about how they feel and, and what they think should be done about masks, mandates, and vaccines. And your elders here, the, the elders here, we faced uh, resistance as we led through COVID. And it's, I'm not trying to say anything negative. Don't, don't hear this. It's just an indication of how we elevate social concerns and causes over the unity and over the walking of, the walking out of a real just life. And so, so we face resistance because we sought, we, we prayed, we sought the scripture, we sought the Lord, we, we sought to walk in the spirit, we looked at the scriptures. Everything we did was based upon a biblical perspective of what's right to do. And then John MacArthur's church, and I really do appreciate John MacArthur. I, I, I have listened to him, I've learned from him, but I think he's a man just like you and me. He gets up in the morning, puts his pants on the same way. You know, there's nothing special about him other than what God chooses to do through him. But because their church, which was in a radically different set of circumstances than we were, decided to civilly disobey, and they actually won a bunch of lawsuits as a result of it, because his church did what it did, we were expected in a, much va- a vastly different set of circumstances, a vastly different governmental system that we're submitting to here, we face resistance because we didn't civilly disobey, we didn't open up and throw off restraints, even though every one of us, I guarantee you, all three of the elders would have preferred just to meet and just to do, not wear masks. Or not, I, I mean, I don't have a problem with masks. None of us have a problem with masks, but most of us just don't like being told what to do. But that says more about us than it does the government that's saying wear masks. Right? Everywhere we turn, this, this is the stuff that's happening around us. Because we've raised these issues, these civil issues, these social issues, to gospel-level issues, to truth issues, to primary issues. The point is, somewhere along the way, the church, broadly speaking again, not just us, but I'm, I'm afraid we're not immune to it. The church seems to have abandoned the doctrines of the gospel as our source of righteousness and unity so that we could stand united in social concerns instead of doctrinal truths. That's not justice. We've seen justice rooted in the truth of God's word. We've seen justice. God first, us all equal, us us having to be justified by faith, all of us sinners, all of us responsible. But this is exactly what's happening, very similar to what's happening to the situation that Paul was addressing in this letter to the church. Theirs wasn't a missional zeal leading to the division, but there was, there, theirs was running back to something that was comfortable, a way of living that made them feel righteous and appear righteous before people. The Judaizers had come into Galatia after Paul began teaching and preaching the gospel there. The Judaizers come in and they say, hey, by the way, Jesus is good and you need to believe he had to die. But more than that, you can't eat pork. More than that, you have to continue circumcising. You're not righteous if you don't do these things. You must continue to to observe the Sabbath and the holy days. 
You cannot be righteous, they said, if you do not do these things, if you do not obey these laws. And Paul just absolutely undermines that teaching in the book of Galatians. But as he finishes, as he comes to the place where he's calling them to action, to to what to do in light of the fact that you've been justified by faith and you've been made just, how do you now live just? He doesn't return to a bunch of social, civic missional appeals he gives us instruction about how to live life together that might be applied in a lot of different ways based on your personal perspectives based on your personal experiences based on the culture in which you live based on the things that the ways that you've suffered as a result of other people the ways that you've suffered as a result of living in a fallen world the ways that you've suffered just as, as a result of your own sin, but they're specific enough to give us something substantial to actually do. We're going to break these down. We're going to look at the three three different things. We could break it down differently, but but for the sake of our time this morning, we're going to break it down into three different things. And the first is going to be a focus on freedom. So how do we live just in in an unjust world? How do we as Christians live just? To live just in an unjust world by faith. Remember, this is a walk of faith. By faith, we must live free from sin and the law. If we're going to live just, it's imperative that we understand what what these words mean. That's why we spent six weeks defining and describing what biblical justice is all about. But we also have to understand what Paul means when he says freedom. What's he talking about when he he says, for, for you were called to freedom, brothers? In our culture, in the world in which we live, in the in the, in the city, in the nation that we live in, I, I think that in American culture, we hear freedom and we think autonomy. Or we think what the Constitution has, a, has provided us, that I can say what I want to say and nobody can tell me I can't say it. That I have freedom to own a weapon if I want to. That I have freedom to do certain things. I, I think that we have a sense in which we equate freedom with being our own highest authority. Now, nobody's going to run around and say that because we all know in some way we've got to obey laws. And, but we treat freedom as if it's autonomy, as autonomous living, and as long as what I'm doing doesn't hurt anybody else, I should be free to do it. That is not at all what Paul's saying. In fact, I think that's easily just demonstrated in this one verse, in verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brothers. And the very next thing he does is limit their freedom. If freedom is autonomous living. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom. He gives them an instruction to follow. You can see it at the beginning of chapter 5, five chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And then what does he do? Stand firm. He gives another instruction. So there's a way in which we can see Paul doesn't intend for us to think, oh, well, freedom means I get to be my own highest authority. It doesn't mean that I get to just live however I long to live. And and whatever my little heart desires, I just go and do so long as I'm not hurting anyone else. There's something else Paul intends to say. You have been free to live. In fact, the the, the Bible's perspective on on living free is less about um, living free from everything and being freed to someone or something. So, so, so we can work it out this way. Uh, in the, 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 
the passage we can see here, that we are freed from the condemnation of the law. So look back up at chapter 5, verse 1. I know we didn't read this, and I didn't have time to read it all. I'm just going to have to, you, you can go back and look at this uh, in a little bit. But back up at chapter 5, verse 1, you can see, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So in this context, as, as Paul's breaking this out, 5-1 through verse 12, and, and actually leading up to it in chapter 4, we're shown that there's a way in which people used to be enslaved to the law. They were commanded to live by it, and the law only ever condemned them because no one could measure up. In fact, he, he, his teaching 5-1 through 12, he shows that that, that, that we need to be freed from the law because if we bind ourselves to the law by trying to earn our righteousness by obeying the law, then we're bound to obey every last word. We're bound to obey every ounce of it. We can't disobey even one of the smallest laws. If we decide we need to be circumcised for righteousness, if we decide that we need to not eat pork in, quarter, in, in, in order to be righteous, if we decide that we must keep the Sabbath day uh, and, and all the Ten Commandments, in order to maintain our righteousness, to become righteous, then, then we are bound and enslaved to the law, and the law will only condemn us. We must be free of it. In fact, we've been freed from it in Christ. That's what justification by faith does. We're freed from condemnation of the law, but we're not freed from God. He's, no, he's not all of a sudden not our primary authority. He's not all of a sudden no longer able to command us to live. We are freed from the condemnation of the law, yes, but we are freed to obey our God. Another way that he deals with it here, in verse 13, he says, you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We're freed from the bondage of our sinful flesh, so we actually have an opportunity to live justly, to live righteously, to live as we've been called to live. We've been freed from this. We're always going to sin. We've been freed to be able to obey. So Augustine, in his teaching, uh, I don't remember the time frame. It's going to be the late 300s, early 400s. Uh, but, but he wrote on this, the four states of man, the four positions of mankind. So before creation, mankind was able to sin or able to obey. They were morally neutral. There was no nature pressing them one way or the other. They had... They were just free in that way. They could sin, or they could not sin. They had that, that, that option, free and clear. After the fall, after Adam ate the fruit, they fall into sin, the state of man becomes they are unable to obey. They can only sin. That's the state. And we see that played out all the way through the Scripture, that all of us, no one seeks God, none is righteous, all of those things. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We, we can't help but sin. And then the gospel comes and is preached, and regeneration occurs in the life of a person. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. But Ephesians chapter 4 says, but God made you alive in Christ. Ephesians 2 through uh, 8 through 10, by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourself, so no one can boast. You didn't do it. It's a gift of God, right? Like, that's the idea. You are Christ's workmanship, you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So now in Christ, as a result of being justified by faith, being sanctified in faith, we now are able to sin and not sin. This is not our doing. This is something we've been freed to. When we face temptations as Christians, we can either fall to the temptation or say no to the temptation. 
We have that. We have that opportunity is distinct and different than, than any other, any, anyone else that lives in the world. It doesn't, it sets us apart. It's part of our holiness. It's part of the reality of us being alive in Christ. But it's not because we've done it. It's because we've been freed for it. And so, so Paul comes to the place. So the fourth state of man, let me just point to it just so you can, I can finalize these four things. The fourth state of man is after the return of Christ... When we are living in glory and have been glorified, we won't be able to sin. There will be no desire for it. The nature will not be there at all. We will be totally removed from it. That's the day we all long for, right? So, so there's these four states. Well, he's saying here, you're in this state. You're freed from the bondage of your sinful flesh. So, so don't return to it. Don't give in to it. We're freed from the bondage of your sinful flesh, but we're not freed to just sin freely. We're, we're, we're freed from the bondage of sinful flesh, but... But we're free to live just and righteous lives, to live in accordance with the instructions of the apostles, to the, the word and truth of God. We're free to live righteously. We're free to live justly. In, in his comments on this passage, Stott, I think, sums it up nicely. He says, freedom, he, he describes Christian freedom this way, freedom not to indulge the flesh, but to control the flesh. Freedom not to exploit our neighbor, but to serve our neighbor. Freedom not to disregard the law, but to fulfill the law. Everyone who has been truly set free by Jesus Christ expresses his liberty in these three ways. First, in self-control. Next, in loving service of his neighbor. And thirdly, in obedience to the law of his God. We have been freed from the old selfish, self-centered, I'm going to get my way, I'm going to rule myself, I'm going to do what I want to do, and nobody else can tell me what to do. We've been freed from the commands of the law that we never could adhere to, and the condemnation comes through that. And we've been freed now. To live as God has always intended, freed as God has always commanded, free to do what he tells us to do. We free from that and free to this. To live just in an unjust world by faith, we must live free from sin and the law. And you'll see how that, it's going to build itself out a little further as we continue to walk through. Second, to live just in an unjust world, we, by faith, we must serve one another in love. It's another indication Paul's call to freedom isn't just a freedom of self-service and self-focus. Uh, it, it is about other people. So, so look back at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. So rather than serving yourself, rather than giving in to the, to the desires and the passions of the flesh... Through love, serve one another. This is what it is to live a just life. To live just in an unjust world by faith, we must serve one another in love. We're freed to it. We're made able to. What does that mean, though? Again, we have to understand what he means because the world talks about loving everybody. Right? Love, not hate, right? Like, don't, don't condemn. Don't tell me I'm in sin. Don't tell me that, that my way of life isn't okay. I'm free. <clears throat> It's not at all what he means. But, but he qualifies this by, by a couple of statements that I think are helpful. First, he qualifies it by, by calling us to, to serve, not, not destroy. Serve, not consume one another. So look at the contrast that's drawn out here. He says, serve one another in love. And then look at verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. One of those is beneficial to us and to one another. And one of those brings harm and hurt and pain. Injustice, right? We're called to serve, not, not consume one another. And typically, the people of the world approach this, and, and they love one another for 
for, for what the other person brings. They, they love one another for what they can get out of it. They, they, they come to a relationship seeking to consume and receive. And Paul's saying, no, enter into relationship, enter into life together by what you can bring. So we see this play out in the church all the time. Not ours necessarily, but it's certainly evident in the world around us that, that there's this consumeristic mentality that <clears throat> certain methodologies of church, church, church will... Um, seek to, to draw on. So the, the seeker-sensitive idea is to meet people at their basis desires, that felt need, that, that desire for a show. That, uh, and, and God has used those systems. God has brought people through and, and raised people up and matured them through those systems. But it's, it's starting at a place, that the struggle is that it starts at a place about personal consumption and what can I get from you rather than what the church has always been called to and as you come, what can I bring to you? How can I serve you? How can I add to and benefit and bless the people in this room, in my small group, in my Bible studies? How, how can I live for the good of others? Isn't that exactly how Jesus lived towards us? Absolutely. He calls us to serve, not consume one another. Then he goes on in, in verse 14, and we kind of skip past that because it, I, I needed to deal with that portion. But, but look what he says. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We're, we're no longer measured by how good we do that. But having been freed in Christ to, to walk in this way, we now have an ability to actually fulfill and do the very things he's called us to do and not do the things that he's called us not to do. We actually have an opportunity to obey and love others like we love ourselves. <laughs> Some have taken issue with the fact that he says, oh, the whole law hangs on these things and, and, and the perspective is, well, you know what? Jesus says that there's the greatest commandment, love God, then love others. That's the second greatest commandment. I think Calvin was helpful as I was reading through this. John Calvin was helpful because he noted that, that God's invisible. And we could say we love God all day long, right? Oh, I love God. I love him with my whole heart. We can come to church and we can consume everything, everybody, just bleed each other dry. Never express any sense of love towards one another. What does that prove? We don't really love God. But if we love God who is invisible, we will love his people who are right here in front of us. And that's why Paul settles this whole thing on this one law, is that the idea here is that, that if we love God, we will love one another. And practically, what's that going to look like then? Does it mean that I serve on a mission team, a, a Sunday morning ministry team, and serve the, the mission of the church? Maybe. Does it mean that I, that I volunteer for children's ministry or kids' way or nursery rotation or worship team? Or, maybe. But it could be that when the person in front of you says, man, I'm hurting, or you find out there's some financial need or some way in which they are struggling with the situation that you don't ignore their need and you just step in and seek to serve and love, take care of them in the midst of that if you're able there's several verses that give us some practical perspective on what this might look like. Matthew 7, 12, Jesus speaking on the Sermon on the Mount says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So you see that loving one another, this, that him, him summing this up in this verse is another way to say it, to love our neighbor as ourself is a summation of the law and the prophets. That, that Jesus is saying love isn't just some wishful thought or some emotional feeling. 
It's a doing for others what you would have them do for you. It's not a, oh man, I, 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 I want people to do this for me, and when they do, then I'll start to do to them what they're doing for me. It's not, I'm going to return what they give me. Just No, it's you sitting in the midst of your circumstance, where you're at right now, today, thinking, well, I feel all alone in the world. I feel isolated. I feel tense. I, what, what do you want people to do for you in that moment? That's the thing you start doing for everybody else. Well, wait, wait, wait a minute. What, what if I do it and, and I don't get it back? Has the Lord left you in want and need before? Has he not met you at the very depths of your need? You're saved, right? Like you're justified by faith. You've been blessed by all, with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms. He's given you all you need for life and godliness. So these verses that speak to the vast ways in which he's blessed us and provided for us and made us so wealthy beyond our wildest imaginations. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. So even if they're hurting me, harming me, acting as an enemy toward me. What, what does that mean I do? You do to them the thing that you wish they were doing to you. Treat them justly in love. Paul later said, sets Jesus' life and humility out as an example of this loving service. Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So don't give, don't, don't give any any sway or swing or, or power or presence or position to your fleshly desires. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So as you're sitting there trying to figure out, how do I love people? How about you put yourself in their shoes? Think about the experiences that they have and they're experiencing that you may not be. So, so, so we, we, we talk, this is probably the least offensive way to do it, except for those that might be young in college or something like that, and, and uh, so I apologize. But, 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 but we hear someone who has not lived a lot of life come to us. I, let's, let's press it down past college students. Let's talk about children. Little, maybe, maybe, maybe it'll be a little easier for us all to swallow. <laughs> Our children come to us, and they've got this great crisis. Their favorite toy is broken. Is that really a great crisis? Is that the hardest thing you're going to deal with in a day? But it is the hardest thing they're going to deal with in a day. Have you ever thought, put yourself in the shoes of that kid? How about this? In the conversations about racism, rather than calling everybody a critical race theorist who's trying to figure out how to speak to the issues of racism, how about we seek to put ourselves in the shoes of that person and understand their experience so that as we do speak truth in love, which is necessary, which is an important part of loving one another, at least we're doing it in a way that's seeking to meet them where they are. Isn't that what the Lord did for you? Didn't he, he confronted you in your sin, didn't he? He convicts us by the Holy Spirit. He, he challenges it. But does he come with a hammer and just beat us? Now, Romans tells us it's this kindness that leads us to repentance. It's our Savior who took on flesh and dwelt among us, who, 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 who saw our perspective, who suffered and been tempted in every way in which we have suffered, that enables us now to know we can trust him. 
He is our high priest. We learned all about this in Hebrews, in our study of Hebrews. It is his coming into the midst of our circumstance that makes him so easy to, see, to, to receive his love when he does confront, when he does convict. Maybe, maybe, just, just maybe, I don't know if this is true or not, this is anecdotal, but maybe some of us would be so less quick to be offended if we sought to put ourselves in the shoes of other people rather than demanding everybody see things our way. Uh, we are doing an injustice to one another when we will only consider our own interests. That is selfish ambition and conceit. That's not what we've been called to, is it? That's not the love we have received. That's not the justice that we have been, that's been done on our behalf. In, in our study of John's letter just a few months back, or maybe it was a year ago, I don't know, it feels like a, a while back, in, in John's first letter, we see that this is not just a spiritual concern, but it's also a physical concern. By this, 1 John 3, 16 and 17, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? From Jesus' sacrifice to accomplish a spiritual work, John illustrates a very practical, physical way in which we meet one another's needs. This demonstrates that this, this love that we've been called to is, is yes, it, it's absolutely it's sacrificial, it's beneficial, it's proactive. We're not sitting around waiting for somebody to, to ask us for it. We're not sitting around for someone to deserve it. It's, it's, it's us seeking to live for the good of others at the cost of ourselves. Absolutely, this rings true in our spiritual lives and our physical lives. In fact, if God's love is in us, there seems to be an indication in this verse that we will be concerned about both the spiritual and the physical needs of our brothers and sisters. To live just in an unjust world by faith, we must serve one another in love. We must love one another this way. If we, and, and just consider this. If we begin to love and serve one another like this, what, what injustices or harm could we bring to one another? Can you sin against someone when you are loving them as yourself? I don't think so. I think that's why Paul says that this fulfills the law, because we cease sinning against one another when we begin to serve one another in this kind of love. Because no longer are we harming or hurting or doing injustice but we are living to the benefit of others. Of course, that's going to come at a cost, and, and that's going to make you vulnerable, and that could mean you get hurt. But just imagine. Let's, let's just do a thought experiment. I've used this word too often lately. I don't know why, where I've come. Let's just do a thought experiment. Let's imagine you do it, and the other people in this room do it. The people that are in our church that aren't here begin to do it. Who's left in need if everyone else is seeking to love and serve and meet one another's needs? The picture we see in Scripture is that God's people's needs are met through God's people as we love and serve one another. Yeah, it might be costly. 
that it might just be the place we find that we are blessed beyond our wildest dreams. Because instead of having to clamor for and fight for and earn and pull and, 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 and seek to promote self and, earn and get my own way, instead of doing all of that, we find people coming to us to serve and give and take care of and protect and love. That's the justice that we've been called to. Does that mean that we ignore sin? No. Does that mean that we, that we affirm sin? No. But as we walk together in this, we take care of one another, we protect one another, we provide for one another, serve one another. And of course, the world, they're going to be out there doing their same old things. They're going to be doing the same old things they've always been doing. And, and, and they're going to be crying out against all the injustice that they experience. And, and then we're the church. And we're going to be able to say to them, hey, hey, there is another way in Christ. Come trust in him, believe in him, be justified by faith, and join us in loving and serving one another, in living free from sin and the law. And then thirdly, to live just in an unjust world. By faith, we must stay in step with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the biggest chunk of it, and we're going to move through this kind of quickly, but but it's important we see it. Again, these two paths, right? To live just in an unjust world by faith, we must stay in step with the Holy Spirit. And we've already touched on these paths. There's the way in which we can indulge the flesh. We can live to our sin nature, or we can live to our spirit nature, to, to walking in the Spirit, to living by the Spirit. We, we have this option. We've, we've been given this ability, this freedom, because of being justified in Christ and being conformed to His image. And Paul lays it out in two ways. At first, he says, don't live according to the passions of your flesh. The, the passions of the flesh and the, passion, and the desires of the Spirit, radically different things, radically different ways to live. They're incompatible. You can't do one while doing the other. You can't pretend one while doing the other. God knows. And so he says, don't live according to the passions of your flesh. And, and, and those are evident. Those works are evident. And he lays out this list. And people that are smarter than me have categorized these things. Uh, I think it's John Stott that I, I drew this from that, that, uh, that, that categorized these different, these different acts of sin. First, he speaks of sexuality. He speaks of, of the first three, sexual immorality. This beginning in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. These, these ways in which we indulge our sexual nature. And we live in these ways in which you're dishonoring to God and one another. The greatest, greatest, oh man, the greatest lie, I think, in common culture, not the greatest, but one of the most prominent lies in, in common culture today is that because I love you, I must have you physically. It's all over our televisions, all in our songs, it's all, all, all around us. We live in a world drenched with this, that I love you, so I got to have you physically. When we've recognized that love is to give yourself away, not take something that's not yours to have. But this is what we do. The, the works of the flesh actually bring harm in this sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. There's a category of religion. And then in the next two, we see idolatry and sensuality. Or, or not, sorry, not sensuality, sorcery. <laughs> I guess there's religions that do that. But, but idolatry and sorcery, the idea here is, is that we're worshiping something else. We're, we're giving ourselves to the worship of another god. We're, we're, we're seeking the power of some other god. And, and this stuff's real. It's, it's, it's freaky, but it's real. 
To deny that there's some dark black power out there, there's some dark way in which people live and draw on power from some dark sources. Well, it's nice to explain it away with science and things like that, but there's a real spiritual enemy we are facing that is working against us. First time I ever saw it was in, uh, first time I ever saw it so plainly was in Guatemala when I was on a short-term trip there. I was there to, uh, with, a, with another church to help with an orphanage uh, to do some work down there, and, and uh, I was talking to the driver who was driving us around, and, and he was sharing with us uh, about the, the darkness and the, the power that was at work and how Guatemala is vastly Catholic, and, and in front of most of the Catholic churches, witch doctors from the, from the Aztecs, or the, I can't remember the, the I think it's the Aztecs, that, that still exist today, will we'll set up shop in front of these, in front of the cathedrals there, and the, the priests have no problem with it, and they'll set, set up shop, and they'll actually heal people. They'll actually do some miraculous work that people will go there and be sick, and then suddenly not be sick. He said, but you always know that it's not, it's not God's power. You always can determine and see that it's dark power because it absolutely consumes them. And once they've been healed that way, they have to keep coming back and being healed that way. It doesn't actually restore them. It makes them dependent upon this dark power. It freaked me out sitting in this van talking to this guy in a place that I was far from home. But it's real. And then we see it at play in, in, village, in, the, in the village in Africa. When a, when a Muslim man says, I went to my marabou and he gave me these phrases I could repeat so that I could not be burned by the hot coals. And, he, and he's a blacksmith and he reaches into the coals and he picks up a coal and he puts it in his hand. He sits there in front of me with this hot coal in his hand. And he's, not, he's not flinching. Tell me that doesn't send shiver. Oh, I mean, maybe you don't feel it, but I feel it just sitting here because I know in that moment that I'm... We're seeking to live by some other power. We're li- looking to be devoted to some other God. That's the passions of the flesh lead us to this stuff. And it's evident. It's everywhere. We see it. There's ways in which it destroys relationships. Remember, you go back to the verse we, we read at the beginning about devouring one another and consuming and feasting on one another rather than serving and loving one another. But the works of the flesh are evident. They, they, they produce enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. They set us against one another rather than for one another. Anywhere in your life, anywhere in your life, I'm starting with you, but anywhere in your life that you see these things, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, divisions, dissensions, envy, you see those things? Those are because you're giving in to your sin nature. Now, if you know somebody that this surrounds them, they're giving in to their sin nature. To love them is to step into the middle of their circumstance and situation, to care enough about them, to step in and say, look, this is evidence of your sin. Turn around. I love you enough to speak truth to you. But don't fire that message across Facebook and say, I condemn this person because look at them. That's a coward's way to pretend to love. That ain't love. He goes on, the, the next one's not just relationship, but drink, drunkenness, and orgies. And, and, and I don't know why, I, I, I mean, I do know why the ESV chose to use orgies there. But the idea in both of these is overindulgence. Overindulgence in alcohol and overindulgence in the life that the life of alcohol, alcohol leads to, carousing. The life that extends from drunkenness. 
throwing off all inhibitions and just living to however, however you want. He says, don't do this any longer. You have been freed. You have been, you, you have been a, made able to love. You've been freed to love and serve one another. And you have been freed by the Spirit. This is, He is producing something different in you. So put into practice what the Spirit produces in you. And then He lays out another list, but a radically different list. And instead of the, looking at the exact works that it causes, He looks at the attitudes and the motives and the character traits that it produces. And, and, and again, somebody smarter than me sat down and, and categorized these things and puts them to, to, to three groups of three, love, joy, peace, this, this, this group of, or, or, or trinity of, if you will, this triad of Christian virtues that seemingly, yeah, absolutely, I, I want to spread love, I want to be joyful towards people, I want to be at peace with people, but all three of these I will only ever enjoy if I know the Lord and walk with the Lord. We can only love because we've been loved. We can only know joy because his joy, Christ says to his apostles, I want to give you my joy. We can only know peace because Jesus is our peace. These are directly sourced from him in order for us to live in them. Next, he highlights patience, kindness, and goodness. And, and these are the, the, the social virtues of, 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 uh, that, that we act out towards one another. If, if we have love, joy, and peace, we can be patient. That means long-suffering. That doesn't mean, oh, my wife takes a long time to comb her hair and put on her makeup in the morning. i got to be patient. No, it means you got to suffer long around difficult people, people who are hard to love. You know who that is? Us. Every last stinking one of us. I'm not hard to love. Yes, you are. And I am too. So we got to suffer long with one another. Be kind to one another. Again, we go back to that idea that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Good towards one another. What does it mean to be good towards one another? It means to actually long for the good, beneficial things of God and to meet one another in those places of spiritual and physical need. So yes, sometimes we confront sin. Sometimes we just exhort on to good works, as, as the writer of Hebrews says. Sometimes we just celebrate together. With the ones who are weeping, we weep. With the ones who are rejoicing, we rejoice. Always looking to the glory of God the Father and pointing people to see Jesus is preeminent. And then the third group of three, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These inward attitudes, these, these, these inward realities that enable us to do all the others. I walk faithfully with God. You walk faithfully with your Lord. This idea that we continue in faith, we endure in faith, the Spirit produces this in us. Gentleness and humility, humbleness, so that I can, so that I can stop and consider the interests of others more than my own. And self-control. Being able to actually, now you don't think this, and we, never, we, we don't talk about it a lot, we don't consider it a lot, but outside of Christ and outside the production of self-control by the Holy Spirit, nobody actually can control themselves. You are not ever autonomous to yourself. You are bound by a sin nature, bound by the influence of the world, bound by the, by the, by the influence of the devil, and bound by the passions of your sinful flesh. But the Spirit frees us so that we can now exercise self-control, walk faithfully and gently with one another. Against these things, there is no law. There's no law because these are the just things that we are to do. These are the righteous ways in which we are called to live. And those ways can be applied across every situation and every circumstance. And yet, 
We live in a time and in a day where we are quick to stand up in self-righteous judgment. I don't do that, but they do, so I'm not going I'm not, I'm not, to, I can't be with them anymore. I can't partner with them. I can't participate with them. In fact, I'm not even sure if they're a Christian. Forget all that, all that their ministry has meant. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm being open here. This, these are things I struggled with. As this all starts to unfold a couple of years ago, and I'm beginning to see men who I've respected and admired who have taught the gospel faithfully begin to do things that I was, wait a minute, I, I don't know if I can go there. And then being able to sit down and listen to some of them. Now, I don't, I don't appreciate all the ways in which they involve themselves. I don't, I, but they're still brothers and sisters in Christ. They have not rejected the gospel. They still love the Lord. They're seeking to love people. Just because I can't be, that doesn't mean I, oh, you can't do that. You can't do it that way. Jesus was condemned for hanging out with sinners, drunkards, tax collectors. Paul was condemned because he would do whatever was necessary that he might save some. And here we are. We've been called to live justly. We do that. We, we put that into practice by, 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 by living free from sin and the law, and even a law of our own making. We do that by serving one another in love, and we stay in step with the Holy Spirit. Here's, here's what's amazing to me about this. The fruits of the Spirit are the product of the Holy Spirit. He's the one that produces them. But what are we responsible to do as a result? Practice them. Do them. So stay in step with the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If you've been made alive, if you have been justified by faith, if you have been regenerated, if you, have been, if you are being sanctified, if the Spirit now dwells in you, you have been made alive by Him, then you keep in step with Him. Practice the very things He produces. Now, if, if we each got busy doing these things, if we each patterned our lives according to these things, we might not live up to the standards of activism in the world. We might not protest enough, right? We, not, we, we, we might not even say the things the protesters want us to protest with. We're, not, we're, we're definitely not going to be received by the world. We're not going to make it on, 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 on um, the news for being great, uh, taking a great stance in, in the world's eyes for our positions. We're not going to make the world just by the way we live. But how different might the world look if the church, and not just ours, but the church, got busy living free from sin? How different would our lives just be if every one of us lived free from sin. What if, what if we no longer lived according to laws that are extra biblical and that God hasn't commanded us to live by? And what if we quit holding one another accountable to those laws that we set for ourselves, these personal convictions we have that I can't go there but doesn't mean somebody else isn't free to? How, how different might the world look if the church got busy loving the person right in front of them? I'm not talking about the people 
that live in Chicago that we have no ability to physically, actively love. I'm talking about the people right here. Just love this person right here in front of you. Literally serve them in love. What if the church got busy serving the people that they are equipped and able to serve and quit demanding everybody else to do it? What if the church got busy living in step with God's spirit and putting into practice all the fruits that he's produced in you and in me? How different might that be? And we're not going to satisfy the world. We're not going to live up to their expectations. In fact, they're still going to reject us and accuse us. But we will begin to reflect a society that does justice. We will begin to reflect the just kingdom that God will finally and fully consummate when his son returns and makes all things new. We will get a taste of heaven right here on earth if we will simply learn that this is how we live just in an unjust world. Let's pray.